Regulate Tech. This is our first episode of 2023. Ta-da-da-da! Uh, happy New Year! Happy New late, Year. late, late, yes, happy very New late. Year. We're February. kind of lazy, I think. Yeah. Yes. So, um, mm. this episode, we would return to one of our old favorite subjects, which is the online safety bill. And there's a new one every time we talk, it seems. <laughs> yes. And this time around, it's coming very close to... It's final shape, perhaps, yeah. and there are changes in it that are quite interesting. Talk, talk a little bit about what what is the process that leads to these, because they're quite big changes that we're seeing. They are. So, so there's a kind of the gestation process of a piece of legislation can be longer than the gestation of an elephant. It got like it can take years, and <laughs> yes. this one I think is and the elephant yeah. is cuter in the end, and they are cuter. Yes, yeah. so we're 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 literally I think now at um, five years that the, the sort of process has been running of thinking about this. And then what happened was we, we there's a process where the government puts forward ideas. They then gave us the first version of the bill. <clears throat> the first version of the bill went to a joint committee of both houses of the UK Parliament. Today, I think we'll get a little bit into parliamentary procedure. Ah. So some members of the House of Lords, the unelected second chamber, and some members of the House of Commons, the elected first chamber, got together, looked at the bill, produced, I think, a very good report, a reasonable report saying, you know, we like these pieces of it, we don't like those pieces of it. And so the bill was revised again on the basis of that feedback. It then went into the House of Commons uh, and the House of Commons did its thing. And for the thing to become law in the UK, it has to have been through both houses. So process of going through the House of Commons, lots of different stages, and then process of going through the House of Lords. As it got near to finishing its process in the House of Commons... We had, I think, two changes of Prime Minister. We had one, uh, this Liz Truss came in and she didn't last very long and then she went out again. But sort of through that process of turmoil in the governing party, it became clear that they wanted to rethink some aspects of the bill. Why? Let's let's dig, <clears throat> dig into that a bit. What's the what was it outside pressure? Was it a fundamental difference of ideology? Was it a changing of the times from when the process started to when the government looked at it again? Did you know had the world changed enough for them to rethink it? What yeah. if you're, what's your best guess? I, I mean, there's a so um, the bill I think is not a free expression bill. The bill is about limiting what people in the United Kingdom can see on the internet. That's his primary purpose. It's about limiting expression. Yeah. But the government, we're trying to portray it as on the one hand, on the other. And so mm. on the one hand, it limits expression, but on the other hand, there's a load of free expression stuff in there. I actually think that's misleading. I think it's like three steps forward towards restricting expression and like half a step back at best. But the political will was to say, we want it to be more free expression. That, yes. That's really, that was the, the sort of political shift in, in the ruling Conservative parties. It thinking. seems to be influenced a bit by the discussion you can see, for example, in the US, where there's a worry that platforms are stifling uh, speech, yeah. perhaps from the Conservative side. But that's not the debate we had in the UK. But, no, no, I think it's different. And, and the US, I mean, again, really interesting. I, I think the idea of pro-free speech legislation is an oxymoron. It, it doesn't exist. And the framers of the US amend, First Amendment got it right. They said, Congress shall make no laws. So if you believe in you're maximalist in free expression, you should not want any laws in this space at all because all laws tend to limit expression. If you don't want to limit it, you don't make a law. And and there's just like a just a, a tendency to go in that direction. Now, in the European tradition, we are more comfortable with laws that limit expression. But what you have with the Conservative Party is you know, they were putting forward a law that was going to limit expression. In the sense, they got cold feet and they kind of went, ah, you know, let's row it back a bit. So the most visible thing that they did was version, I don't know, version two of the bill. Version one was the one that went to the Joint Committee. Version two was the one that went to the House of Commons. It had some provisions in it which said that the regulator would be responsible for making sure that online platforms did certain things around content that was not illegal. That's a double negative. but uh, And what they did was to say, look, we're going to take that out and we're going to say that you know, the, the, the regulator's toughest powers are restricted to making sure that platforms do certain things with content that is illegal in the United Kingdom. And that's the, the we have debated this before the the formulation of legal but, but harmful, harmful, which is a horrible framing, and people say like it was never in the bill, but it was basically saying, you know, um, uh, the regulator takes upon themselves this ability to kind of tell you what to do about stuff that is not illegal, and now in the latest version it says, look, the regulator can tell you what to do, 
about stuff that is not illegal if it's deemed to be harmful to children. But if it's not illegal and, and the complaint is that it's harmful to an adult, the regulator can't order you to do anything with that content. That content should be dealt with under your terms of service, but you are free as a platform to be more or less restrictive or permissive for anything that is not illegal. Uh, and what the regulators can do is make sure you enforce your terms, but not tell you what they should be. So that that's the rowing back. It's sort of, as I say, it's, you know, if the old bill was four steps forward, quarter of a step back we're now three steps forward half a step back mm. yeah it's, but it's that's the change that they really felt they need to make and one of the things we like to do is to think about the harms and mm. to really think and there there seems to be uh, two interesting theories of harm here one is that that harm and illegality should be defined as the same thing that seems to be one theory right yeah. and the other theory is that but there are harms that can be defined by platforms in their terms of services and if they define something as a harm according to their terms of services they should be held to consistently apply Sorry. that standard as well so there's a privately defined harm if you will and then a publicly defined harm is that what's happening? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, honestly, I think if we take a step back, like just zoom right out here, what's happening is that Parliament is taking to itself the power to tell online platforms, tens of thousands of them, how they should run their business and how they should regulate speech as exposed to people in the United Kingdom. I mean, like this is like a dramatic shift. We're, we're writing ourselves in thousands of pages of law you know, we're writing ourselves this ability to say to the platform, like, this is what you've got to do in terms of making speech available to people in the UK or restricting it. And if you don't do that, you can't operate in the UK market. And if you try and resist, we can find the hell out of you and we can even put you in prison. I'm sure we'll get to well, that. Uh, yes, that seems to be yeah. another big deal. But, but, the, yeah. but that's pretty dramatic. So it's like, basically, you know, once this is in law, you have to pay up because you have to pay for the privilege of being regulated, so you're going to have to give our regulator money, and you're going to have to follow all their instructions or get out of the UK market. That's dramatic. Yes. And so what we're really arguing about then is what's the scope of that set of instructions that the regulator can give to them, and and you know un under what terms, and and what are the sanctions if they fail to meet them. And what we've said, and uh, the way I've sort of characterised this is, there's a saying, I think, from the Gnostic Gospels, which is Jesus was asked about something to do with the Roman Empire, and he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and, and unto God that which is God's. And so we sort of ended up with that to say, and then this Who model, is Caesar and who is God so, here? So, <laughs> you know, Caesar is the person who runs the platform, the worldly manager of the platform. Right, right. God is parliament and the British government. Oh, there so God go. ultimately has the authority. We could tell them whatever. We, we can set the law. And that's also extraordinary for me that there's this whole thing of, you know, platforms are so powerful and we're so weak. But actually, no. I mean, we can write whatever we want in the law. We can say, you must make all your websites green if we like, or you must put everything item that begins with an F at the top of your newsfeed. We can write anything into this law. It's Parliament yeah. sovereign. Um, and so what we're doing is deciding what is Caesar's and what is God's. And, and we've said, look, for, for stuff that's illegal... That's God's. <laughs> we don't lay down the law. We can tell you exactly what to do and we can really come after you if, you if you don't deal with it. Beyond that, except for children, we'll talk about that exception, but certainly for, for adult stuff, we're saying we're leaving that to Caesar. Having done that, I was in the debate last yesterday for hours and hours and hours in the House of Lords, and you can already sense a lot of nervousness and a lot of people wanting to row back and, and go back to where they were before because they're saying... Does that really mean that lots of awful speech that we hate it could be allowed by a platform if they want to and there's nothing we can do? And the answer is, well, if their terms say it's OK, it's OK. Or what about all that misinformation? Unless you make it illegal later on, Unless because you have the power to do that. Too. Yeah, yeah, which again, and I've argued why, why you don't, we should never expect the law to be coterminous with what's unacceptable in a free society. Uh, and, and again, the example I'd use, look, if, if I go into a... Uh, any public space if we walk out of here now and go into a bar there's lots of things that we can't say <laughs> yes. you know, we can't shout racist speech or say that we want to you know women are whatever or 
you know, hand out Nazi pamphlets without getting thrown out. And I think that's how, you know, pretty much how online platforms work. There are some way you can do all of that well, stuff. Civil society norms in exactly. addition to the laws. Right? Exactly. So that, that civil society norm stuff is for the platforms to do. But I can hear some sort of colleagues in Parliament already getting nervous and going, but, but the bad place will still exist. Well, they will. Just like in the real world, there are some pubs you can go to where... You know, people will say racist things and they're pretty bad. Um, but most people don't go to those places most of the time. But I, I can hear some people getting nervous. But that's, you've got to jump one way or the other. And so it's interesting if you do, if you look at the different iterations of the online safety bill and you try to predict how much content would be in scope of the of mm. the regulation, would you say that it's radically less, radically more over the different iterations? So, so actually, I don't think it is. And, and here's the other thing <laughs> that um, uh, I'm sure you've experienced this. I that I think there's like a popular misconception, particularly amongst policymakers, actually, that that it's clear what's legal and what's illegal. Mm. Like, and in the real world, it's not. So if you take an area like hate speech, you know, in in the UK there is a very narrow subset of hate speech. That would be illegal in the sense that, look, if, if if someone complained and this went to court, a judge looking at all the circumstances might say you've broken the law. Like That's how we define illegality. Until you've been to court and a judge has ruled, you don't know. So as a platform, you see some speech. And all you can do is you can send it to a lawyer and the lawyer will say, nah, it's probably illegal or it's quite likely illegal or it's always going to be qualified with some judgment. So... When you're dealing with something like hate speech, you're you're dealing with it as a class of content of which a, a subset may be illegal. Uh, and so, again, in practice, when you're trying to comply with the online safety bill, I, 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 even though the law says technically, look, you're only in trouble if you fail to remove the illegal stuff. In practice, you're going to be looking at all hate speech or all terrorist content. Again, you know, somebody starts praising a terrorist organisation, at what point does that cross the line? We have a law in the UK about praising terrorist organisations, but it's quite tightly defined, quite rightly, yeah. again, because we believe in freedom of expression. So I think for most classes of content, the practical effect of this change is very small. But what it does mean from a, a risk point of view from the platform is that their risk is slightly uh, narrowed because their legal risk only kicks in if they can be proved to have failed over the, the illegal stuff. There's a different risk if they're proved to, to be not enforcing their own terms of service. But again, in reality, as I say, the terms of service are going to be much wider than the narrow set of illegal terrorism or hate speech or whatever we're talking about. They're going to be more broadly drawn. Uh, and so platforms in practice are going to be removing a much broader range of content. They do today. Yes. And there's no reason to think that they'll stop doing it in future. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it seems to me that <clears throat> going back to, say, circa 2006, 2007, platforms um, that were around at that time spent a lot of time trying to determine those fine nuances of the law. Is this really X or is it yeah. not X? And they had a, a lot of very thoughtful people who sort of spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure this stuff out and then render some kind of judgment and build almost what's resembled in internal case law. Over time, I think platforms have wearied of this and they've adopted broader and broader standards yeah. saying that, you know, why don't we take it down instead of spending cycles on it because there's some reputational harm and it does create some legal risk. And so if you think about the way that the online safety bill is, is shaped now, it's very likely that, that the, the corona of stuff that will be taken down outside of the actually illegal content is actually going to be quite large as compared both to earlier times and compared to no online safety yeah. bill, right? Yeah, I think, I, I, and again, I, I personally think this is quite smart to say Caesar and God, to, like, to make that distinction, because I think from a sort of constitutional point of view, I think there should be a distinction if a, if a government has made something illegal about how their regulator treats that versus yeah. something that's not. But as I say, in practice, you're absolutely right that as platforms sort of become bigger, become public companies, try and attract commercial business, they, I think, inevitably end up restricting far more speech than that which is narrowly illegal. Like yes. it's just, it's, because the community 
wants to, just in the same way that if I run a reputable pub or a restaurant, I'm not going to, you know, allow all sorts of behaviour that a perhaps a small disreputable pub or restaurant would allow. It's something about being mainstream that allows that. Now, some of the uh, opponents of of the way in which the bill works or the fears that they had is that they feared that the effect of the legislation would be to make this even broader still. And I think actually where we've ended up, it's, it's, it's going to be very little change in terms of, you know, I, ca- I can't see platforms making their terms of service broader or restrictions under the terms of service broader than they are today. I think they'll catch illegal and then, as you described it, a corona of other stuff. But there's, there's no reason for them to go further I think there was a risk with the last version of the bill that they would. Uh, mm. So now, now you know, as long as they've got the illegal stuff, that they've got to be like, you know, 95% good on the illegal stuff or 98%. And then on the broader span of stuff that's prohibited under their terms, they still need to be pretty good. Because the government's saying they've got to do what they said they did, but they're not going to be quite at the same level of legal risk if they screw up on that so they can afford to be you know, a little bit less strict. I think in the last version of the bill, yeah, if, if you know, the regulator was going to be equally strict on all of this other stuff, then perhaps they'd have to go a little bit broader again. So this allows them to stay where they are today in terms of overall restrictions. Same amount of hate speech, same amount of terrorist content as today will probably come down. And that will capture all the illegal stuff that they're really worried about and the terms of service stuff where... They do need to do it, but but they're under a little bit less jeopardy. So we, we coming back to the question, we think that at one point in the evolution of the bill, the the corona content was actually quite big, but it's shrunk a little bit and, and gone back to if you, uh, ex ante. So before yeah. the bill yeah. and when the bill comes into force, is, what's the delta then between uh, the scope, do you think? I, I don't think there's much of a delta. I think actually what platforms will have to do is they'll have to much more tightly define their terms of service because now again you know if if in the world before you were unhappy you, you thought that the platform was not doing what it said it would do there was very little you could do no you know you had to go and challenge the platform directly but but that's difficult uh, uh post the bill once it's in force if you think the platform is not enforcing its own terms you can go and make a complaint to the regulator ofcom mm. and ofcom will not say what it thinks the term should be but it will look at whether or not they've been enforced so if I was working at a platform today I would want to go and check what we're actually doing (laughs) and what our terms say and make sure that there's very close alignment and I think again you and I've experienced this sometimes the practice and what's written in the terms have have got out of kilter yeah and they do and there's a delta for a while now they have to make sure that that the terms are really quite specific and precise and that if there is a complaint they can demonstrate to Ofcom that what was in their terms is what they actually did. So it changes the nature and function of the terms of service a little bit. Because the terms of service, <clears throat> when they were drafted originally, way back when, you know, in the early 2000s, they were largely put in place um, in an American spirit, which was, we want to have this so we have the ability to remove stuff we don't like. Yeah. Very broadly written, very sort of uh, generous application for the part of the platform. But what you're saying now is that a part of the negotiation of social safety that goes beyond what is actually illegal is going to be, the site for that is going to be the terms of service. So if you're an activist and there's something you really don't like, it now makes sense rather than to go, say, change the law, to lobby the platform to change its terms of service. Yeah, potentially that's the way it goes. And it does import, in a sense, a, a concept from American law. So in, in the US, what, one of the reasons why you and I might have experienced it, it was very hard sometimes to make public commitments about anything is that um, the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, which is a very powerful regulator, has this notion of unfair and deceptive practices. Mm. Quite broad, which says, look, if a platform makes a public commitment, or any product, actually, it's not about platforms, it's any product, you say, my soap powder washes whiter than white, and if your soap powder does not wash whiter than white, someone can argue that was unfair and deceptive. They bought the product 
you know, on the misleading information. And so that actually, I think, drove a lot of platforms in the US to, to make as few commitments as possible yeah. because they were worried about being held to them. Uh, and I, I've had that view when we're trying to sign no, up totally. to European codes of practice and the lawyers would look at it and go, oh, you can't sign up to that because... It, because it would actually have legal force in the US. In the US. Whereas in Europe, it would be soft law. Or, exactly. Yeah, exactly um, yeah. But I think we're in a sense, we're sort of importing that concept now into the UK model where... You know, there is a regulator, so Ofcom will act like the FTC in the US in, in the sense that if somebody thinks that the platform's not conforming to its own terms of service, they've got a regulator to go to now and effectively argue that it was unfair and deceptive. It, it, it didn't work as they said it would work. So, so here's a question for you. Doesn't that actually provide an incentive for the platform to look at their terms and services and say, ooh, there's so much in there that we put in there over the years. Let's take all of that out and be very restrictive in what we remove and have a very minimum that we think corresponds to the economic value of the platform and nothing else. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think to a certain extent, but then there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the bill. And remember, this is a very long bill with a lot of clauses <laughs> where they will have to put a whole load of stuff in. So it's got, for example, particular protections around content of public significance so journalists political content and so on so so once you when the lawyers sit down and read through this bill and by the way just to flag again something we called out early on that there was a an impact assessment i think i had some ludicrously low figures for yes. for how much cost it would be for people to do a legal review of the online safety bill and become compliant like this is going to cost a it's lot of money one legal intern one month oh yeah, yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah it was like this is like so they you know teams of lawyers are going to work on this for months and months to figure out what to do I think at the end of it, they will effectively have to rewrite their terms for the UK. And they're probably going to have to do something similar for Digital Services Act in the EU. And one of the big questions is is whether you know the rewrite in one country is going to also be acceptable in another country, or we end up with like hugely varied terms for every country, depending on what they need. But the incentive seems to be otherwise. Well, that was another question I had for you. Looking at the current version of the online service bill and then looking at the DSA, What's the delta between the regulated contents? Yeah, um, so so they cover some. Yeah, you know, they're quite similar, but the DSA, in a sense, actually is less tightly defined. So the the um, uh, online safety bill is much more clear and specific about what it's going after. So, for example, it has a list of priority UK offences that are the main thing to go after. And and it can do that because in in the EU, as we, again we've experienced. Speech laws differ hugely. I don't know how the DSA is going to work. It's like you get, you know, there is stuff that it is absolutely strictly illegal to say in Germany. You cross the border to the Netherlands, and that's absolutely protected speech. And how dare anyone interfere and, with and it? And then so if you like, go to the Nordics, there oh, yeah. is almost nothing you can't burn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I, I mean, they're going to have fun with theirs, but because the UK one is single country only, they can be much more specific about you know these are the things you've got to watch out for. So I think the UK one is quite tightly defined, it covers a lot of the same areas. Some areas actually it doesn't cover that I think the EU is aiming at. So things like mis- and disinformation actually are not in the UK law. They're not interested in that. I mean, people are interested and there may be amendments, but but it's not there today. At the moment, it's very sort of tightly defined around sort of child safety, kind of offences against the person, and then a few areas like fraud. Um, so fraud would be covered, financial fraud, but yeah. not not you know, sort of misinformation, stuff like that. So in this case, um, the UK delivers on actually covering less content and being a clearer regulation than what the European Union is. So the sort of this, this idea that the UK regulation would be significantly different from European Union legislation seems to be true. It is, yeah. Yeah, they've gone in a different direction. So it's, it's really quite clear and quite precise. Actually, the one that is clo closer to than, I think, the DSA is the German Network Enforcement Act. Mm. So it's actually, it's got something similar to that. The Network Enforcement Act had a whole list of things that are illegal and and said this is how you must deal with with those things so yes. so if there isn't an origin it's it's closer to the network enforcement the dsa in, in a sense i think sort of goes wider and is a little bit more um uh div, dis, dif, diffuse shall we say yeah. i mean it's, it's still it's it's shaping up the european commission's got their hands on it and they're trying to work out what to do with it uh, uh at the moment i think they're working through that process now but yeah, because it's in a single country, it can just list, you know, single 
pieces of illegal speech and say that's what we want you to deal with yeah and so again assume you were back advising a platform mm. wouldn't you just tell them to run with the dsa because if you get the dsa right you'll cover the online safety bill automatically yeah i i don't think so and i think it's the dynamic it's really interesting how this is going to play out now because again c- candidly that the ofcom i think had a very good reputation globally as a leading telecoms regulator and and a lot of what was happening in European telecoms regulation, Ofcom would quite often be the lead, and so it would what you do it first with Ofcom, and then you kind of roll it mm. o- over into other regulators within the EU because I think it was seen as a more sort of dynamic, forward-looking market. Um, now that that dynamic's broken, <laughs> it's 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 quite interesting to see because I uh, I think in some ways that the sort of nitty gritty it'll be easier for the companies to kind of get to grips with what they have to do to comply in the UK. Um, I mean, there's also a reason English language and the fact yeah. that a lot of the companies are American run and, you know, is, is a significant issue. Cut the culture, Ofcom's going to have 300 people hired, a lot of whom come from the sector. Uh, whereas in with the commission, I think you'd be more dealing with more traditional civil servants, shall we say, of people who have worked, uh, they'll hire externally as well. But I think the core are our long-term public servants. It's a different culture that you have there. Different uh, labour law. Different <laughs> labour law. But it, yeah, so so I, I, I think, so. you know, had we still been in the EU uh, and the DSA was covering the UK, probably you would have looked to do the UK compliance yeah. and then and then sort of roll that over. Now that link is broken. It's, it's fascinating to see how that works out. So, But I, I do think the companies will have to do both. Uh, the... Digital Services Act was sort of first out the blocks in terms of actually getting on the statute book. But I think the online safety bill in some ways will move faster once it's through. So what are the what are the traps here? <clears throat> Assume you're you're a platform, you have looked at all of your terms of services, yeah. you've looked at your practices, you've looked at transparency and accountability, yeah. you looked at all of those different things, and you're a you're a you're a large platform uh, or a very yeah. large platform, and so you're yeah. complying with that according to the DSA, and you're like, that's it, I'm not going to have a look at this online safety bill. Where can you fall short if yeah. you just do that? So, so I think the the gatekeeping. So there's a really really big focus on age assurance, like verification, all of that sort of stuff, and we should. There are a couple of things in there that are. Um, They've got a lot of focus, and I think on getting more focus, it goes through the Parliament. Again, so just just quick stock check on where we are. So it's gone through the House of Commons. Yeah. It goes through the House of Lords. The House of Lords, essentially, in the British system, is the place where things get tidied up. Because in the House of Commons, the government just, just defends its legislation and says no to everything. And the government has a majority. So even where people raise sensible changes, the government tends to go no. And then by the time it gets to the House of Lords where the government doesn't have a majority, the, the, then there'll be a lot of tidying up. And some of that tidying up is stuff the government wants to do anyway, and some of that tidying up is is um, sort of prompted by people outside the government. But there's a process now where they'll do that. And so you start to see the areas. The government has already signalled the areas where they want to get tough, mm. and they've signalled where the priorities <clears throat> are. And one of them is this age assurance, age verification. Yeah, let's talk about that, because yeah. that, that's another big change, the way that, that sort of children is... Well, not a change, but a sort of a they've pushed even more on how children are singled out as as an object of protection. Yeah, the, the harm to children is a significant That's concern. Right. So there are various elements to it. So so one is um, the bill has much much heavier requirements if your service is available to children, and the and they'll assume it is unless you use age verification to prove that you're eighteen plus. So one question, and I think it's a genuine question for a service like Twitter, would be. You know, if if your audience is anyway eighteen plus and you don't care about the youngsters, then you have an option to say, look, I, I'm going to make sure I'm eighteen plus only. Uh, I'm going to kick, you know, I'm going to demonstrate to the regulator that I'm doing proper gatekeeping, and if I can do that, I don't need to do any of the kids' requirements, and that mm-hmm. actually makes my life a lot easier. So there's a there's a business case, you know, doing the kids' requirements versus losing under 18s but. but so what do you then do with the installed base because you have a number of uk users already yeah you'd have to kick them off but how do you know do you oh, kick so you'd have to run everyone th- you'd have to run so you'd have to kick every, every well, no, you'd uk every, twitter user you, log in again and then age you make verify. them age verify so you yeah. force log them out and then, and then when get they them log to come in, in and, okay, and do it so that's that's sort of one one question and and um so there's there's that if you want to 
thing about the regulatory obligations. There is a, a real obsession with pornography, and actually came up in the debate yesterday. Like, like a lot of it's very graphic. <laughs> don't don't uh, uh, the record of the UK Parliament is called Hansard, and if you search the Hansard, don't look for the House of Lords. <laughs> like, you wouldn't pass a lot of filtering systems because they. I mean, it's safer it's, work is is safe for the House of Lords. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and it's uh, <laughs> we have a tradition of uh, um, getting quite graphic. So so. Um, uh, there was a lot of graphic conversation, but there's a, there's a genuine concern. But it, but the porn thing sort of breaks down into a, a number of potential chances. I think most people, including myself, would say, look, if you want to have an eighteen plus verification for a thing that is, you know, getyourpornhere.com, like an, a straightforward commercial porn website, that's pretty straightforward. And 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 the porn providers, a lot of them will say that's okay. But here's the problem. They'll say that's okay as long as you make sure that everyone does it. Yeah. And then we get into two two challenges. One challenge is what about the mixed sites? And of the big social networks, most of them are porn-free, but Twitter is not. And Twitter is actually the big sort of question. So if you're going to have a big know-your-customer age assurance gate at the front of a I, I, you know, getyourpornhere.com, everyone's fine, but it would be quite different to say, okay, you now need to have that before you can get onto a Twitter or a Reddit mm. where there is some, you know, adult content on it. And uh, so there's a big question there about is it porn dedicated sites only or what about sites where you could access porn but but they're not porn sites? Um, yeah. Big question there. And then the second one is blocking. Uh yes. Because, well, yeah, the big mainstream pornography providers, I'm sure, if they think everyone's doing it, they'll accept they do it. But they're going to be knocking on the government's door and saying, look, you've got to block all those sites that don't sign up. Yes. Uh, and that could be a lot of websites on the Internet. So, so I think because, yes, we put the serious age gating onto those getyourpornhere.com sites, but we don't want then people to be displaced to other sites that have some porn that's the only place they can go and get it or two sites that are just going yeah we're outside the uk screw you we're not gonna comply and so they need a fix for the twitters and reddits and the fix could be some kind of gating reliable gating if you want the porn content so you go to normal twitter fine there'll be a you know whatever controls you have to access normal twitter but then there'll be another level of controls if with inside twitter or reddit or wherever you want to get into the adult bit. Mm. Uh, and then somewhere in the network, and this is tough, and we've actually had a law on the UK statute book for a while called the Digital Economy Act that already said they should be insisting on age verification for porn sites, never got implemented. And I think one of the big challenges is the second piece, which is how's it going to work if we have to tell all the UK internet service providers, here's a list of potentially thousands of IP addresses that they have to block. Yes. And and there's been a bit of IP <clears throat> address blocking at the network level in the UK for things like Pirate Bay and stuff that we've discussed. Mm -hmm. But doing it at scale uh, is a bit of an unknown for us. Normal for China, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not normal for the UK. And so I think just from a very practical point of view... And, and yeah. it takes some curation too, because you can't yeah. just block a list and say, no, no. done. Yeah. Because once you do that, the list changes, and, right? Uh, yeah, and, and the porn's now being served from a bit of uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, that's got other stuff on it. Or, you know, so it's, it's you know, blocking, reliably blocking internet sites at it's scale hard. is hard. And and it's, it seems pretty unavoidable. If if we're assuming that we're going to have, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 big name um, commercial pornography providers, perfectly legal, now doing good know your customer checks and getting through to, to uh, their adult user base. Uh, but we don't want underage just sort of roaming off and, and they, they will and they'll find I mean it's always about putting friction in place like you never yeah. get a perfect block but it's but also like a, it's, a, it's an interesting problem because there's like an inverse motivation for for young people to sometimes find out what this is because they're curious and as you grow older you might become less curious about porn yeah. and so it's a really hard problem because the circumvention um, incentives are very high they're very high and so you want to put 
enough friction in place that I mean that's the whole point of the law is to make it more frictionful yeah I think there are some colleagues who think you can make it perfect uh hopefully as we go through the the bill they'll realize it's not it's, it's just about what's what's the right level of friction and so you know the right level of friction <clears throat> for a gambling site today is yeah. you know your customer check and the credit card check and so on and so you may end up with with the right level of friction for a porn site being that but what's the right level of friction for a general social network that has a bit of adult content in it. Uh, I mean, this notion of its major purpose being is, of course, it, really difficult. It, to, exactly. To so I think we're going to go well, backwards and, and forwards on just that. Just as a tangential, is this also true for, for porn magazines in the UK, that you have to be aged by them? So, so you, you do. And so one of the examples, actually, of you, because we like our real-world examples, is, yeah. is, is the difference between a sex shop and sex shops in the UK always were 18 only with a big sign over the door yeah. and going to a general newsagent or bookshop where, where you know, it has some adult content, but you don't ban all the kids from going in there. You, when they get to the counter, you say you can't have that. Okay. And by the way, there isn't you know, a, a pronunciation thing. This is a very old joke for people like me. Is when you go to the library in the UK, if you really care about the pronunciation, if you if you want to say, look, where's the adult book section? That's fine. But if you say, where's the adult book section? That means something completely different. That's oh, very oh, old. there you go. That's that's horror, yeah. Adult, that's, that's very, adult. Yes, yeah, yeah. Very esoteric. This is helpful. Right? <laughs> that's okay, so so we have this uh, this sort of the child provisions in the bill being driven mostly by a concern around pornography and the destructive nature of pornography in yeah. society. And, and it's leading to these age verification rules which Sorry. means that a lot of personal data is going to be collected around age verification here that balance is something it's generally seen as, as reasonable to, to strike there is I think again and there's concerns about how do you do this in a privacy safe way and who's going to do it and I think those are t technically surmountable yeah and I think, in a sense, they're more straightforward questions. And again, Ofcom will will decide what's acceptable or not uh, in terms of those systems. But I think that's those are more straightforward questions than these other ones, which is like, how comfortable are we with mass scale network level blocking, and 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 what about mixed use sites? I think those are more challenging, in a sense, than the the technical question of what's what's the right kind of measure. It seems that that also would be a difference with the DSA, right? Because in the DSA, that is not covered in the same yeah, way. Yeah, I don't think they have the same session. And and again, once you cross the channel, uh, the the balance of privacy versus security shifts. I mean, there's yes. a, a much stronger weight on privacy. I understand that. I think measures where you're collecting lots of data will receive candidly more scrutiny on the other side of the channel than they will do in the UK yes. um, and there are people in the UK who are very exercised about this but I think and there are also different views of pornography and other kinds of content as you said earlier the content yeah. the the sort of content laws are not uniform right. I, I do remember one of my colleagues at Facebook getting hauled before the European Parliament with complaints about why the 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 service had banned pictures of hardcore pornography from Denmark. I think it was. And oh, it was wow. like, yeah, it was a Danish yes. MEP who was very angry. You know, on the barricades, like get rid of it. Well, you wouldn't get that in the UK. No, no, doesn't um, seem very. Likely. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and then the other piece of age verification, which I think is is again really interesting and is is uh, un unresolved or not fully worked through, is the government is saying they really want all the social media platforms to enforce their minimum ages. At, which are mostly around 13 at the moment. Because and I, of the Children's Online Protection Act in the US. Uh, no, I mean, it's just it's just here, I think there's a general view that, you know, social media is damaging for kids. Oh, but the 13-year uh, age... Oh, the 13-year age... Is, well, it's, it's GDPR. And again, I think there's misunderstanding. I, uh, oh, but COPPA existed before. The yeah, yeah, COPPA existed before. But in, in GDPR, um, there are different age limits in different countries. The UK chose 13. All that means is actually if, if kids are on under the age of 13, they should have parental consent. Yes. Now, what's actually happening today is, you know, Ofcom produced the figures, 60% of 8 to 11-year-olds have a social media profile. Yeah. And I would argue that the vast majority of those are doing it with parental consent because the parent bought the phone and gave it to them and actually has supervised their access. But they've registered as an over 13-year-old because they wouldn't get through the gate otherwise. And so the, the question is, look, if, if the government's going to say we want to get really tough and if your minimum age is 13, you must enforce it and prove to the regulator you're enforcing it. Like, for me, the, the natural consequence of that is we should be saying, 
well, two things. Either kids under 13 should not have mobile phones. <laughs> Logically defensible, I think completely unrealistic. Or we need to think hard about what the services we want to have available for under 13s look like. Yeah. And for me, I, again, I'm going to be challenged, but I think that the large platforms, I think, you know, a TikTok can make a safe TikTok for a 10-year-old and Instagram can make a safe Instagram for a 10-year-old if they know that they're 10, if everybody's honest and open about it and they've got parental consent. Yeah. I think that's probably a, a pretty like reasonable outcome but we're not hearing that we're kind of hearing this you know just kick all the kids off and yeah. it's like so you leave the kids with phones and uh, but you're kicking them off all the mainstream services where do they then end up they end up with services that are far from mainstream that's an interesting point. they would or i think what will happen is now again you've put friction in place you haven't actually stopped the thing that the the parent is now going to lie more profoundly <laughs> because you know, if the parent's willing to have the child on there. Uh, yeah. Again, I mean, there's there are different groups. There are subsets of parents who don't want their kids on there at all. But I think there's a much larger group of parents who are who believe in sort of responsible internet use, are comfortable with their kids and being also introduced early on. And this is how a lot of the kids actually interact. It's exactly. a, a huge part of their social lives. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I did. My, you know, my kids went on school trips. Like, I, I, if my kids are going on a school trip, uh, they have to have WhatsApp because that's how you organize and keep everyone safe on the school trip yes and so yes, the idea yeah I, I yeah okay, candidly i would i would rather my child has the service that allows them to stay safe yeah uh and i'm prepared to sign them up for that service than have them kicked off so what i want is exactly that i mean i want to my kids a bit older now but as a parent i would want a safe service where i've given consent where maybe i've got controls i can view all the contacts and my kids all that sort of stuff that's what I want. I want those, you know, smart, well-organized, very experienced internet service providers to give me that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want them creating a desert for under 13s. But that, as I say, like it's really hard to argue that in a political context. It's like yeah. you you want the kids doing the crack cocaine of social media at the age of 10. And it's like, <laughs> well, you know, they've got the yeah. phones and I don't think we're going backwards. No, we're not. We're absolutely not. Which, which is another question. So we, um, we have the, the, the children provisions. Mm. We have uh, talked a little bit about what happened with the scope of the legislation. But in, in addition to this, at a fairly late stage, um, uh, there was this uh, push to also put criminal liability oh, yes. in place. So let's talk about that, because that might affect the scope, I feel. Yeah. So... so um... It was again. It's interesting in the debate. Uh, once once you've got past the uh, the sort of adult rated stuff in the debate, if you listen to it, you'll you the laws debate. You'll hear some contributions from people who who genuinely believe that the people who run tech companies are evil. And yeah. our listeners might have some. Some of them may take issue with that. Some of them may agree with it. And so their their view is that these people are are venal. They're they're only interested in money. And the only thing that they're scared of is going to prison and therefore we've got to put measures in place. Otherwise, they won't do what's in the bill. I Again, I actually fundamentally disagree with that. I think that once you have to do all of this work and demonstrate all this stuff to a regulator, most serious companies will change their behaviour. I think these laws, the Online Safety Bill and the Digital Services Act, will change behaviour. Yeah, whether or not you've got these sanctions in place, yes. um, because because you, you are law abiding, you've got lawyers that tell you you must do this, and there are also fines yeah. attached that yeah. don't necessarily have criminal liability for individuals there. And I, 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 but I do wonder how it will affect. So let's talk about the construction of criminal liability mm. here. When, when would it be triggered? Well, so that's the thing. So we had a debate around this, and I, I um, certainly have strong views on it. That that or in the foot in the last version of the bill, it said if you if the regulator Ofcom comes and says, I want information. I want information about what you're doing with terrorist content, for example. And if you said to Ofcom, screw you, I'm, I'm not talking to you, uh, or <laughs> you know, then you could be personally liable because you'd refuse yeah. to cooperate. Or if you said... But who? If, we, if, uh, we're, if we're sort of talking about... The, so the, the person who received the request. So if I address the request to somebody who uh, has the social media manager on yeah, the floor... And, and again, I think... You know, there's a general principle of reasonableness if if this yeah. ever came to court, but I think if Ofcom demonstrated they sent a letter to the head of terrorist content <laughs> at Meta, 
And the head of terrorist content had gone... The head of... Uh, okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yes. Counter-terrorism. Yes, sorry, that, yeah. that seems better. Whatever. Yes. And, the, and they're expected either to provide the information or to say, I can't, but here's another person at Meta that can. So they, you, you, it'd be reasonable. So, it, But if they just sort of said, we're not going to talk to you, or they sent information that was deliberately false. Yes. They said, oh, we, we haven't got any terrorist content. <laughs> All right. Um, um, that person, the person who received the request is liable like so they either need to answer the request or they need to find someone who can answer the request mm. and they need to do it truthfully uh, or or they could again courts are reasonable they could demonstrate that that is they nobody has the information like if they can but again i don't think ofcom's going to make an unreasonable request they're going no. to ask about something they know someone has to the right person and that and that person as i say i i find it inconceivable that anyone from a major company will no, quite the contrary. That. No, they would but, like to get back as soon as possible if they could. I think. Exactly. But I think smaller companies, the ones who don't believe in regulation, some of them may just ignore that and then they will end up liable. And Ofcom, will, this is a stick they've got to say, we sent a letter to person X at this company that we can identify as being responsible for X-chan or whatever, some, you know, some service that's sort of offshore and they didn't respond uh, and therefore now they're in jeopardy in the British court. Now, how enforceable that is, is a Depends on question, if they ever but, come to... Yeah, but, but from a point of view of like a stick that they can use to, yeah. to beat the company, that works. So that was the original version. Like the person who was asked for information, who refused to provide it or lied. Yeah. Now, the, the version that was a, then debated in the House of Commons at the other end was to say that you could make liable... Um, executives for failures uh, to comply with duty the duty of care towards children so this is the duty to keep children safe and <clears throat> i objected to that i mean to that because i think that the duty of care itself um is is very broad and quite ill defined it need it will need to be defined so the whole process of ofcom's engagement yeah. with companies is a process of saying what have you done is that good enough backwards and forwards <clears throat> you know trying to work out at what at what point do you think they've met the duty of care and so there was a risk that somebody would would say you know this happened i think they've not met the duty of care i'm going to go to court and i'm going to ask the judge to prosecute that executive for failing to meet the duty of care and this could be running in parallel with the ofcom regulatory process and and the judge and Ofcom might come to different views. I mean, I mean, a lot of British judges would say, "Look, I'll defer to Ofcom," but you've still got, you know, potentially this sort of conflict, conflict between different yeah, institutions, uh, yeah. both trying to say, <clears throat> you know, did did that executive meet the duty of care? Now the government hasn't given us the final version, but I think they've moved to a place which, personally, I think is much more sensible. Which says, um, the way it works is, company has to do the risk assessment, provide the information goes to Ofcom, Ofcom looks at what they say they're doing, they decide whether or not they met the duty of care. If Ofcom thinks that they're failing in any respect, Ofcom has all sorts of powers in the bill to give directions. So, so you know, the company may say, we've looked at it, we don't think we need to scan for self-harm content because we think it's all fine and there isn't enough. And Ofcom may say, no, that's wrong. You know, you have to have a team dedicated to removing self-harm content because the risk assessment shows the risk is too high. If you refuse to do it voluntarily, we give you a direction. Company X, have a team, find self-harm content. Now that direction will come to an executive in the company. It'll come to somebody who's powerful enough to make it happen. So the new version, I think, will say, look, if that person on receipt of the direction says, screw you, Ofcom, <laughs> then... Uh, they can make themselves liable and, and they use some language around sort of consenting conniving and again i i can see that it sort of makes sense the regulator has told you do something and if you oh this would be true for many other sectors too where you can become criminally liable for not cleaning up for yeah. example an environmental spill or something having like been that, ordered right? to do it yeah yeah and the advantage of this is from a prosecution point of view you know going to court to try and prove whether somebody met a duty of care very broad thing hard yeah. And who who was responsible hard. 
Ofcom's issued a direction. The direction has gone to Mr. Nicholas Lumblad, Google yeah. Towers, you know, <laughs> and uh, they know who it's gone to. They know what it said. And you can test, as a matter of fact, did they do the thing? Yeah. I told them to put in place this team. Did they do it? I can ask for the decision-making process internally and see whether... That's a part of the discovery part process. Of the discovery. Yeah, did, yeah. did this person say you know, minute, screw Ofcom, we're not doing it, you know. <laughs> and if that minute exists and they didn't do the thing, well, you know. And it also has the advantage of the, the broader duty of care provision or that way of framing it would obviously have an impact on, again, what we spoke about before, the scope of the legislation and the amount of content taken down. Because if I know that there is somewhere in this duty of care, there is sort of lurking a criminal liability, yeah. I might just say, oh, that looks bad, let's take it all down. So narrowing the criminal liability to this very particular process might also have the merit of, yeah. of narrowing yeah. the scope of the legislation. Exactly. You know, you will know the point at which you've become in jeopardy. And while you're in this process of working with Ofcom to define... It's also a safe harbour, whereas sort of you, you have the benefit of the doubt as long as you're negotiating in good faith. In right? good faith and you're trying to do the right yes. thing, which I think is right. And, and this perhaps is the maybe the biggest area where I think um, the bill potentially uh, is going to... Yeah, it's, it's going to be really hard. Like content moderation is hard. It is very. It hard. involves trade offs and judgments. Yes. And whenever you have trade offs and judgments, people will come to different views. And I think like Ofcom's view about whether the trade off that or judgment that a company has made is right should be the supreme view. That's the way you get the clarity. The clarity is Parliament says to Ofcom, we want you to you know, moderate the platforms for these things. We want you to yeah. regulate the platforms and make sure they're doing these things. Ofcom then says, right, let's translate that into detail. Uh, we've been told we need to make sure you're dealing with self-harm content for kids. You've told us what we're what you're doing and we've said that's good enough. You're catching 95% of bad content of type X. We Ofcom are happy. Now, someone else is going to say, look, no, I think they should have caught 98%. Mm. Or somebody else is going to say, look, by catching 95%, they've also caught some stuff that they shouldn't have. And because of freedom of expression, I think they should change it and only catch 85%. Uh, uh, because that way we protect more good content. And those people are all going to have different views. And that's fine. And Ofcom should listen to them. But what you don't want is three different standards yeah. and you don't you you've really got we've got to avoid creating those those scenarios um but i think ofcom is going to be left in the position that the platforms are in today mm. where they're constantly disappointing people who make a different judgment who either want them to be more aggressive or they want them to be more permissive yeah. uh, but ofcom has to be given the scope to define the line and we as politicians have to defend ofcom when they have defined the line, and we mustn't create a whole bunch of mechanisms where we second-guess them and create alternative visions. And there is a risk of that, I think, a little bit with oh, the legislation. So, so let's do the, the ultimate mm. test then. Let's, let's say this, this something close to this mm. becomes law, it passes through the process, it is enacted, Ofcom takes its role. Fast forward to 2030. Yeah. Um, you're looking at this and you say... It was a pretty darn good bill. It was very successful. I think it should be held up as an example for how to do this kind of regulation. What will you be looking at? And conversely, you look back from 2030 and say, that was a huge waste of time. And yeah. it also led to some pretty bad outcomes. What, are the, what would yeah. you be looking for to assess the success or failure of the bill? Yeah. So for me, success is that you've continued to make incremental improvements in the safety of online services. So it's the outcome. Like our, our users, our citizens in the United Kingdom, do they feel safer online? Do they have a better online experience? That's really what it's all about. More of the good stuff, less of the bad stuff, you know, and, and however they define that. So the test, I think, and the real test should be, we should be asking them, you know, a panel of UK citizens every year, how do they feel it's going? Mm. And I think it is about incremental improvement. Again, one of the analogies I like to use is that of cars. You know, Cars, are, in many ways, are analogous because they're all about personal freedom. We all want to get on the road and drive without asking permission. And, and sadly, they cause harm. You know, that We haven't made them perfectly safe. But what we've done is incrementally make them a little bit safer every year. And we have targets mm. to do that. Not to, not to, to make them 100% safe, 
wanted that, they'd drive at 15 kilometers an hour and they'd, they'd all have big sort of spongy bags around them. But we make them a little bit safer every year. Uh, and I think if you, we should be able to see that. In the same way we can see that road safety over five or 10 years has improved, we should be able to see that the services have improved over that sort of period of time. But this is interesting. And, and in some sense, what you're suggesting is that the success of a law like this is to get out of the unhealthy cycle where legislation always lags behind technological and social development and is trying to catch up. But what you say is, okay, we will not be able to catch up in legislation. We can catch up in enforcement and regulation yeah. where the um, where Ofcom, for example, can keep pace with both technological development and the social development that leads to the use of these services and has an overall effect on online safety. So yeah. it's a shift of mechanism into this sort of Ofcom-led negotiation of safety rather than anything else. And if that keeps pace with the way that things are growing, then we should be good. Yeah, yeah. And it's, we have a spectrum of where services are, just like we had a spectrum of sort of safety in vehicles and things. You want to pull everyone into the leading edge of that. So Ofcom sets a leading edge and pulls everyone towards that. But that leading edge has to be realistic. It, it yeah. can't be you know, impossible for people to meet. And, and you're just pulling improvements through the whole system by, you know, we just, we design seatbelts and we start with them voluntary and then at a certain point they can become mandatory because they're already in the market enough and we know how they work. So that's that, that's for me is the success that you're pulling through safety, making incremental improvements. The failure, and I use this for speech, is cookie banners. Yes. Cookie banner syndrome, I've said. And there are lots of areas like this and again, some people might like cookie banners. They were a late amendment to the e-privacy directive. So they came in. It's exactly the scenario we're in now where someone's got a piece of legislation and they have a bright idea and they go, let's just throw this in there. And cookie banners have had almost zero effect on advertising. One decision by Apple has done more to restrict online behavioral advertising than all of those millions of banners that are out there. They've cost hundreds of millions of euros and a uh, worst they're a mild irritant and at best oh, sorry at best they're a mild irritant and at worst they've trained a generation of people or just to click through. there's a security risk. Yeah the security risk you just train people yeah. to click. So so I think and again it's hard for legislators sometimes to accept it but you just need to look at it and go that was a failure. Like if we wanted to ban online behavioural advertising we should have banned it or talked to Apple sooner <laughs> and yes. got them to do it. You know like it was it, in fact the other version was to do it in browser controls and now yeah. we look at it that would have been so much better but anyway that's the risk and I can see in a number of these areas in the online safety bill so age verification is one it could be done well age or age assurance there are different ways of doing this you could do this really well you could assign people to the right age groups you could end up with a much safer internet people getting the right services you could do it really badly where it's like cookie banners and it's expensive and it's full of friction and changes nothing. So all the 10 year olds now just appear to be 18 year olds uh, having gone through some process like that. You know, that is a like a major error. There's one area in the bill which I'm skeptical of. I, I will say it. I'll have to say it in the debate. But it's there's this whole idea of content controls. So the uh, part of the deal was we're not going to deal with this legal but harmful stuff so if it's legal you can keep it on the platform but you must have control so the user can decide whether or not to see it i'm i have a lot of questions around whether or not that's going to be uh you know it's an old idea to push the controls to the edge we've talked about this before the early pick standard the yeah. idea that the user can control it's not entirely bad the problem is that when you mandate them you really create the ceiling rather than the floor so i think some users would ask for this merely for commercial reasons and, yeah. you know it would be demand driven it would be great for me to have the ability to scale down a little bit of this content and scale up a little bit of that content but i think when you mandate it what you do is you create the ceiling where there's going to be a clunky set of possible cookie Exactly. And that's it. Yeah. So if, if, again, it. if done well, yes. in response to what users actually want, yeah. fine. But let's start with what users actually want. Whereas at the moment we're sitting there theoretically going, I think, and, and again, candidly, politicians are really atypical. And the, and the reason politicians are atypical is because they get constant abuse. So they're a lot drawing on their own experience, which, which is an awful experience. But, you know, yeah. I go online, it's full of abuse. Like, most normal people 
they go online, their newsfeed is not full of terrible abuse. You know, if they like fishing, it's full of fishing stuff. If they like, yeah. you know, swimming, it's full of swimming stuff. So that, that there's this atypical thing. So this idea that the person who has no problem at all with their feed is now suddenly going to be asked to go through a bunch of c- controls to say, do you want to stop the hate speech you weren't getting anyway? That's what I mean by cookie banner syndrome. And I, I, if we stick stuff in there rather than rather than saying Ofcom look at this Ofcom go away and look at what kind of content controls people would actually want and use versus ones that they would just find irritating and getting in the way fine but I've got a little bit because it's from the debate already that it's like no we've got to insist and we've got to almost design it in the legislation so that's Mm. the other it's interesting so uh, when do you think the the bill will actually hit the books? Um, so the the way that the UK system works is you've got to get through in a thing called a parliamentary session. And sessions are, move, like everything in the UK, it's movable feast. Uh, and we thought we were going to run out in May when the king is crowned. But now they've extended to September. They could just extend it. It's like whatever, you know. And so they've extended to September partly to allow this legislation and others to get through. So I think it'll be done by July. Uh, so it'll be on the statute book. And as people keep saying, that's when the real work starts because that's the legislation, the framework. Yeah. Then under the framework, that will now empower Ofcom, the regulator, to start drawing up specific codes of practice and all of the detailed instructions so we, we, by July, will be instructing Ofcom to draw up the instructions that it's going to give to the platforms. Mm. And then there's a sort of bedding in period over a year or two. Um, there'll be some pressure. I think, I think candidly, you know, understanding the full duty of care stuff is going to take time because you've got to get the risk assessments in and look at them before you can know what you're going to tell the platforms to do. The area where there'll be the biggest pressure is the um, back to offer and pornography. <laughs> there'll be a lot of, because we have this law that's not implemented for years, I think there'll be a lot of pressure to say, let's get in the 18-year-old age gate like as soon as it's law, um, which means addressing those hard problems that I described. Mm. And uh, what advice would you give to platforms now? Should they stop, start looking now at the terms of services? Should they wait? Should they reach out to Ofcom? How should they think yeah. about... Because obviously just sitting around and waiting is probably not a good way to address no. something like this, right? Uh, no, I would, I, I would absolutely... I would role play. If I was working at a platform now, I would role play. I would uh, um, do my risk assessments because I think they're good. And I think they've got a lot of this actually anyway. Yeah. But I would pull my risk assessments together looking at all the major areas in the bill, terrorism, hate speech, financial fraud, child abuse, all of that stuff. So I would um, do my risk model risk assessments and I would get a bunch of people in, probably externally, but probably my lawyers actually would be my outside counsel in this case, and <laughs> yes. they would get a lot of money for this, but there you go, that's a nice, nice job if you can get it. Um, and I would get them in and I would present my risk assessment and I would be presenting my plan to deal with it and I would be testing you know does it pass the laugh test (laughs) you know it does it sound like I'm doing something reasonable or or uh uh when I'm actually sitting down across the table with Ofcom are they going to look at me and go what is that all you've got you know and would you do that particularly for the Ofcom audience or would you also go to your users and see what is it that they want because at some point you could argue that a lot of the safety improvements in cars over the years have actually been because people don't want to die in cars there's demand for a safer car so so how do you because at one point you could say look there's a lot of stuff people would want from these platforms in terms of how they evolve over time and you could look at safety and security measures they want and then you can look at the legislation and see where there's a little bit of overlap there perhaps yeah I think the test is actually I think the test is what does the regulator want and what will the users accept yeah. Uh, and again, if we think about the car thing, if you'd said to the users, do you want to, to have seatbelts and stop drink driving and all of those things, I think you, you would have a lot of users who said, would have said no. Uh, so what you had to do was, was, you know, the regulator wanted you to do the seatbelt thing. And then you have to get it to a certain level of acceptance amongst your users. But you are doing it, can, yeah, again, if we're really honest, often you're, you're doing things to your users. Uh, and hopefully with them yes. over time, but often they won't be leading um, in terms of asking for 
things that will almost always make their lives a little bit more frictionful, even if it makes them safer. So, so it's, you're right, it's a really interesting question. I think what you do want to do, though, um, and this is going to be hard, but to be really honest about if the regulator looks like they want you to do something that your users will really hate and will actually make the thing unusable, how do you communicate that? Yeah. You, you can't be crying wolf. You can't be, you know, if it's just a little bit difficult and annoying, you, you, know, you can't say, oh, we fit seatbelts, we'll never sell a car again. Yes. Uh, but there may be some things, you know, you, you make all the cars go at 15 miles an hour and have foam bumpers. Yes, at that point, maybe. <laughs> That's what <laughs> yes. the regulator wanted you to do. You, you would have an argument to say, look, you know, I'm never going to sell a car again. Yeah. Um, so it's that, that balance of not crying wolf, but genuinely communicating if you think the regulator is asking you for a cookie banner, yes. uh, telling you to do something that will be expensive and useless. Yeah. Best case, useless. Best case, useless. <laughs> yes. Worst case, excellent. Harmful. Well, thank you. This is yeah. brilliant. And uh, I think we will close up with that. And you can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. And I, I hope I've been doing a better job of integrating the podcast. I've been playing with oh, some plugins. So oh, I, I think they now appear as posts. Uh, ah, excellent. But, yeah, we're on Spotify, aren't we? We're all over the place. I, yes, we are. And as soon enough. as I figure out their submission system, we'll be on Apple Podcasts. Too. Uh, very, very good. Well, thank you so much. Tune in and listen to us next time because we're off to a new year and I am pretty sure there won't be less tech policy to talk about.